Well, you know, because I've said it a bunch of times already this evening, that it is the second Sunday of Advent, and this Advent season, uh, during our sermon time, we're focusing on why Jesus came in the first place. Advent is Latin for coming, and so uh, we're looking at why. Why did Jesus come? And by, by looking at why Jesus came, hopefully it can help focus our attention on the person that we're worshiping and what it is, who it is we're looking forward uh, to coming in return. Last week, we saw how Jesus was born to bring justice. We saw that in Mary's Magnificat, which she sung about the Lord Jesus. And we, we long for justice to come and to put all things right, to make all things new. How we need justice in our world, right? But how will this just, justice come? When Jesus returns and brings his kingdom in full, will he simply impose kind of new laws, just laws that our lawmakers can't seem to get right? And that doesn't seem very effective to me, though, if Jesus just came with a new kingdom with new laws, because we're not very good at following the laws he's already given us in Scripture. We need more than legal or more than religious reform. So will Jesus bring justice when the kingdom comes by brainwashing us and just making us think right? Will he make us righteous kind of against our will? Highly unlikely. If mind control were the gospel, we wouldn't re really need God to become a baby in Jesus and be dead on a cross or anything like that. We, he's got other ways of doing that. And plus, mind control doesn't really seem to be God's style. So what is it we are celebrating and looking forward to? Part of the answer to that question is found in Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Would you stand with me, please? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which when translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. There are at least three major acts of deliverance uh, in, in the history of God, uh, well, at least before Jesus. There was the Exodus. The Exodus, of course, should be fresh in most of our minds because from September through most of November, we've been journeying through Exodus as a church. It's the story of God saving his people from slavery under the mighty nation of Egypt. And it was the defining moment for the Israelites it was the exodus that shaped their national identity and their spiritual identity. It was when they became the people of God as a nation people. 
Centuries later, the second great deliverance, Israel would be taken into captivity in Babylon. It was in Babylon where we get the great stories of Daniel standing up to wicked regimes. And it is in Babylon where the the prophets write, and Isaiah in particular writes of such wonderful uh, uh, prophecies of a Messiah coming to rescue the people. After Babylon, Israel rarely enjoyed very long stretches of peace in their own land. Foreign invader after foreign invader would come. They would get small sections of peace. But if they they ever had any notion of lasting freedom, it was stripped away when Rome occupied Palestine. Instead of slaves in Egypt deported to a foreign land, living under Roman rule was kind of like being on house arrest. You own the house, you pay the mortgage, You pay the property tax, but someone else gets to control the clicker on the TV and tells you when to mow the lawn and how how short it should be and all that stuff. It was humiliating and oppressive. The angel Gabriel revealed the news about Jesus to Joseph during the time when Rome was occupied by Palestine. For the average Jewish person, there was a longing for God to act just as he had acted in the Exodus and just as he had acted in Babylon. There was a longing for him to flex his mighty arm, biblical language, for God using his power to deliver his people. If you were to ask the average Israelite during the Roman occupation what they wanted most, at least on a national religious level, there was almost no doubt that they would want Rome humbled Israel freed, and God exalted. If you were to ask the average Israelite during the time of Roman occupation what they were looking for in a Messiah or a deliverer, they would have told you something like this, that they're looking for strong leadership, adept in military strategy, a pious follower of Scripture, and they would be expecting someone holy and strong to save them from Rome. So far, so good. Joseph was a Jewish man under Roman occupation. He must have longed for the day that Yahweh would deliver Israel, and he must have gotten excited when an angel of the Lord told him that Mary was going to have a son. I mean, once he got over the stuff that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, uh, that that she was going to have a son, and his name was going to be Jesus, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which means God saves. Of course Yahweh saves That's just what he does. He saves people from their enemies. He brings justice. He humbles the bullies, and he lifts up the weak. That's what Yahweh does. Yahweh saves. But wait, what does the angel actually say to Joseph? This child that will be named Jesus because he will save the people from Rome? No. Is the child to be named Yahweh saves because he will save the people from Caesar? No. Is the child to be named Jesus, Yahweh saves, because he will save people from crazy King Herod? No. No. He will save his people from their sins. Four observations are in order. First, Jesus came to save his people from their sins, not from their enemies. Save people from their sins. Is that what they really needed? Wasn't the greatest need of the people of Israel to have God save them from other people's sins? 
Weren't they the victims of oppression? Wasn't it their national hope that someone would show those Romans a lesson? Israel wanted a social and religious savior. What they needed was a savior from their sins. Someone once said that hell may be described as getting what we want all the time. It is a gracious mercy from God that he gives us what we need, not always what we want. Second observation is that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. In other words, Jesus came to save his people from their own sins, not primarily from the enemy's sins. So in, in one sense, the national hope was that God, Yahweh, would deliver Israel from foreign oppressors, from their enemies. Okay? Now he says, yeah, I'm coming to save you from your sins. The second thing they would automatically think of was, okay, you're coming to rescue us from sins. It must be the sins of the Romans or the corrupt King Herod. But no, it's primarily from their own sins. This would have been a tough pill to swallow. Weren't the Romans the ones with the problem? Wasn't Herod, the mad king, one of the worst offenders of the moral law ever? Weren't there a lot of people a lot worse off than Jesus' people? Well, yeah. And Jesus came to forgive all those other things too, Rome and Herod. Jesus would open up the doors to salvation to the whole world, to anyone who believes in him. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. First, he came to his own people because sometimes when you're on the inside, you don't know how bad you need saving. When Jesus ministered, he was often hardest on the religious leaders of his own religion, the ones who were trying to live as piously as they possibly could. Why was he so hard on them? Because they didn't know how badly they themselves needed saving. Prostitutes, tax collectors, and pagan Gentiles, they knew they needed help because everyone was telling them that all the time. Jesus saved them too, but the toughest hearts to break into are either the ones who don't think they need any help or the ones who just don't care. It makes me think, how about us? We may say things like, you know what? Jesus really needs to forgive our enemies like the people of ISIS or the people running human trafficking rings. They're the ones who need forgiveness, and boy, do they ever. But if I were to ask what our greatest need is, what would we say? And hear me, I know that we have very significant real needs right now. I know that we all have this, the need to put shelter over our heads and put food on the table and clothing, that we all have a need for love and community to feel connected. We can't be fully human without other people to love and to receive love from. We need meaningful work. All of those things are very significant needs. And some of us have very real health concerns, either for ourselves or for people in our lives that we love. This is not to say that those real needs are not important. In fact, Jesus speaks about those very real physical, emotional, spiritual needs and how the Father knows that we need those things and, and wants to provide those things. That's not in question. What is in view here, though, from the lips of the angel Gabriel to Joseph is that Jesus came specifically to address our biggest issue, that we are dead without him rescuing us from our sin. One of the most zealous Jewish teachers in the first century was Saul of Tarsus. 
Saul was a Pharisee, an expert in the religious law. He was pious. He was blameless in following that law. But his world came crashing down one day when he met the resurrected Jesus while on the road to Damascus, Syria. He came to see that he too was a great sinner, that all people at their very core need Jesus to rescue them from sin. So powerful was Paul's experience, or Saul's experience that he changed his name to Paul, which means something like small or humble. It wasn't because Paul wanted to beat himself up that he changed his name. Well, I'm just a lowly worm. Uh, I'm going to name myself small and humble so that I always, I'll never get on my own pedestal. It's actually quite the opposite. He named himself Paul so that he could be reminded that life is found in Jesus, not in his acts, not in his works, not in his piety. The humble person turns toward Jesus. After reflecting on Jesus for many years, Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. It's from Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead. He's writing this to the church. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, like now, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In a very real sense, I could just sit down, because that is such good news. But let me break it down. Paul wrote these words to the church in Ephesus. To the church a group of people who had already been forgiven their sins, who had already come to follow Jesus, a group of people who were worshiping while they're reading this letter from Paul. But like all of us, they're a group of people who easily forget good news. The good news is that Jesus came to save us. He came to rescue us. He came not because of what we were asking for, but because of what we need motivated by grace, by love. And it is by grace, through faith, and his saving power that we find new life. Oh, I said new life. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's let it build a little bit, okay? So first observation, a little recap is in order. First observation, this baby would be named Jesus, Yeshua, or Yahweh saves, because he would save his people from their sins. Our most pressing need is salvation from sin. Second observation, the baby would be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. The people of God need saving just as much as the Romans or the terrorists or the atheists or the new atheists or any other group. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
We are blessed when we know we need Jesus. And my third observation is that Jesus came to save people from their sins. All throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, one thing is clear. Well, lots of things, but one thing is abundantly clear. Yahweh saves, and Yahweh alone saves. Sometimes he delivers, like personally, like he sends plagues on Egypt, or he parts the the Sea of Reeds. Like his power just does amazing things. And sometimes he works through authorized agents like Moses and Joshua and mighty King David slaying Goliath to deliver the people from the Philistines. But whenever a human agent is in play with God saving, they always turn and quickly either write a song that becomes a psalm and, or, or whatever it is, but they give glory to God because they recognize that he is the one doing the saving. So what's expected with this child then, at least in Joseph's mind, would be that he would grow to be the Messiah in the sense that God would work in and through him to deliver the people. He would be maybe like a Moses-type figure or a David-type figure. The Greek sentence, and here's, here's the paradigm-altering reality. The Greek sentence in Matthew 21 is constructed, so it literally reads like this. And you will call his name Jesus for, here's the emphasis, he himself, he himself will save his people from their sins. There's no mistaking it. It's emphatic. Gabriel, the authorized messenger of God, is telling us that Jesus himself came to save people from their sins. How would he do that? Jesus is a human, and humans can't save other humans from their sins. They can't because humans are part of the problem. We all are. Unless, wait a minute, this child's name would be Yahweh saves. He himself will save his people from their sins, and he shall be called Emmanuel. He shall be called a name that means literally God with us, or more exactly, the with us God. What if Jesus and Emmanuel were not just titles reminding people that Yahweh saves? What if this child actually was the with us God? That is the confession of the early church. That is the confession of the church after the resurrection. Somehow, this child is not just the agent through which we are forgiven, but he is the with us God. And this brings us to the fourth observation. It is the verb in Gabriel's sentence. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Save, as in deliver, as in rescue, It is the word used to translate the stories where God saves Israel from Egypt using his strong right arm, when he saves them from the Philistines using his arm, and saves them through the leadership of Joshua and Judges and David the great king, extensions of his arm of justice. It is hard to think of God's mighty acts, his mighty right arm, delivering the people without thinking of war and without thinking of bloodshed, because there's a lot of it. He saves them from Egypt. A lot of Egyptian dudes died there. Uh, Joshua comes into the new land. There's a lot of war. Um, you know, David slays Goliath. Like, <laughs> even in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it puts a stone in the guy's skull, and he falls, like, Samara loves it. When did he fall down? Yeah, he, how come he not get up? Well, he's dead. I mean, the deliverance is costly. And the way that Jesus came 
uh, to save is by doing battle with our true enemy, sin, and death itself. And the blood our hero Jesus drew wasn't the blood of any natural enemy, it was his own. Jesus came to save us from our sins by giving his life in exchange for ours. Now you see why the Benjamins read Isaiah as an Advent text. He came to save us from our sin by defeating, uh, uh, taking away the consequence of our sin, which is death. He came to save us from our sins by giving us his life so we could have new life. Let's talk about sin for a minute because it's fun. No, I said no one ever. Uh, <laughs> it seems to me there are two major errors when we talk about sin, especially when church people talk about sin. The first is that to some degree, we don't think sin is that bad. We tend to rank sins in our mind, whether we admit this or not. Murder is a bad one. Adultery is a bad one. Drug dealing is a bad one. There's low-hanging fruit sins that we all pick really easily, um, and those are the bad ones, right? And what we do is say, well, I'm not as bad as those people, or I'm not like that anymore. So we rank them on our minds from serial killer to Portland Timbers fan or somewhere in between. <laughs> And it got to hand it to him. Timbers won the MLS Cup today. Good on you, Cascadia. We'll get you next year. <clears throat> anyway, if we're not somewhere, you know, in the extreme end of that, we're doing pretty well, right? That's what we tell ourselves. And our other problem, if you don't fall into that category, is that we misunderstand sin altogether. We tend to think of sins like individual acts that are sinful. For example, cheating, lying, secret porn addictions, greed, you name it. We've, come, uh, we've, we've learned to see sin as a collection of all these little things that we do bad. And unfortunately, what many of us have learned over the years is that Jesus expects us to manage these sins. The, the greatest goal of following Jesus is to be good. To commit these little sins as, as, as infrequently as possible. And the problem with that view, you guys, is that that is a negative gospel. It turns the gospel into all of these things you're not supposed to do. And I think we all know where that ends up. With a lot of guilt, either a lot of guilt for a while or after a long while, a lot of numbness. Like, this is just who I am, Eeyore. And the problem with both these assessments, either ranking our sins and making ourselves feel better by looking at serial killers, or by thinking that we've just got to try a little harder and be a little better, and it's all about what not to do, the problem with both those presuppositions is that they're, they're wrong. They're not in the Bible. That's a good place to start. If you've tried to live as a Christian by trying merely to manage your sin problem, you know it doesn't work. And you're not living in the power of the gospel. You and I, through direct effort, might be able to stop sinning in certain areas, but we might be able to break certain habits. But our sins, the little things that we do, are only symptoms of our sin, the big S, like the big problem. We have a deep-rooted problem. I have a deep-rooted problem. Ask any addict, and we're all addicts, by the way, to some things. If you take away one addiction, 
you aren't healed yet. Addictions are just symptoms of deeper issues. And what the Bible says, and what I'm trying to say, is that we are slaves to sin. Paul would say we're dead in our transgressions. And that is the good news of Christmas, that Jesus came to save us from our sins, to deliver us. And it takes two shapes. One, he came to save us from the eternal consequences of our sin. Without Jesus, I am heading toward doom and destruction. What that looks like, I don't know. I don't want to get into that right now. But it's not good. It's not life. And without Jesus, that's where you're headed too. That's what the Bible says. Through faith in Jesus' atoning death, we have forgiveness of sin. But he did more than that. See, forgiveness alone is not the whole gospel. Forgiveness deals with the consequences of our sin, but it does nothing for the future. So it's like someone who's addicted to gambling, and they've gotten in way over their head, and some benevolent uh, person comes in and says, I tell you what, Emily, I know you've got this gambling problem. Um, Emily, I'm going to pay off this bazillion dollar debt. And you're like, oh, I can feel that weight gone. Those people aren't going to break my knees now, you know, <laughs> the stuff you see in the shows. And, uh, but the problem is that Emily's gambling problem isn't fixed yet. And the issue is, so there's forgiveness, but then ask anyone who's got a problem, there's a temptation then to go back to that same vomit once again and to get yourself into more and more trouble. And it becomes this vicious cycle of, oh, I screwed up. Oh, I need forgiveness. Oh, I screwed up. I mean, it's just this back and forth, back and forth. And that is why, secondly, it's important that Gabriel's news says that Jesus will save us from our sins. He'll deliver us from the slavery of sin. Forgiveness, yes, but also a brand new way of being. So here's a definition of sin. A way of living that is less than human. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Usually we, we think of the sins that we do. Sin is lying, cheating, stealing, all those things. But sin is simply living in a way that's less than fully human. Humans designed, made in God's image. You are made in God's image. Designed to reflect his wisdom and his love and his creativity and his glory. To be less than that is to be less than human. I'm less than human a lot of times. To be less than human is sin. And Jesus died to forgive us, but he rose and he sent his Holy Spirit to give us new life. That's the positive gospel. It's about who we are becoming, not, um, not, not, not doing certain things. It's about life, not just preventing death. It's hard to roll out of bed in the morning and think, wow, my faith in Jesus uh, just means that I should try really hard not to do a bunch of things. That's not a very compelling vision. That's not a biblical vision. Biblical vision is, I died to set you free from the consequences. I'm giving you my life to live inside you so that you can have an abundant, full life. And that's where we get things like the fruit of the Spirit. Compelling things like, I want to be a person of love. And joy, I want joy, not just happiness, not just uh, the fun that comes after a couple pints or the, the, the joy in, in, in a flash um, Seahawk victory. 
right? I, I want more than just happiness. I, I want love and joy, and I want peace that transcends understanding. Not just peace when, when my kids are in bed, right? I want peace so that when they're arguing, I can be an agent of peace to be human, to be full as God created me. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Oh, how I need gentleness when my stress level's up and they're bickering. And I'm talking about my kids again. Not that they're, they're great kids. <laughs> self-control, self-control. Folks, these are the, these are the things that, that the gospel, that Jesus came to give us. This is a compelling vision for how to live. It's not just about how not to live. Paul writes in that same chapter in Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them. One of the major motifs of Jesus' ministry is creation. In fact, you got your Matthew and you've got your Luke, and they start the Jesus story off with genealogies and angels and shepherds and Mary and Joseph, and I love those stories. They make better pageants. But John starts off his gospel of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and nothing that has come into being came into being but through him. And in him was life. Life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness could not overpower it. That is creation language. Match up John 1 with Genesis 1. Salvation, salvation is recreation. It's taking that, the fact that we're made in God's image and we're broken, and it's recreating that. Jesus is making us whole, making us new. It is Jesus, our crucified, risen, and reigning king, who invites us to be what we're created to be, recreated image bearers of God. Friends, the good news is that if you're taking a good look at yourself and feeling like you are walking listlessly, if you're trying to manage your sin, or you just feel lost, Jesus is inviting you and me to repent, to change course, to follow him on the road of life, whether you're repenting for the first time or for the thousandth time, I invite you to respond to God's grace by placing your faith in Him. That's why He came at Christmas. Lord, hear our prayer as we've been, as thoughts have been uh, boiling up uh, throughout this time of uh, looking at the Scripture. Hear our desperate need for you. Help us, Lord, to come to you like Paul, small and humble. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the gift of, uh, of having that compelling vision of who Jesus died and rose that we could become. Help us to long for more than just not doing certain things but to be full of your life. Amen.